the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome again to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. I'm going solo tonight. This show, for those of you who haven't heard it before, we spend part of the show taking questions about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally. And as far as elder law is concerned, we're trying to save our prime purpose is try to save assets from nursing home bills. We always, always try to keep you out of court. So if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, give us a call at 866 866- 8709622 The second part of the show we interview personalities and we talk about politics, history, religion and sometimes nostalgia. And tonight we're going to be talking to Chris Bryce, we're talking history. Chris Bryce is one of the historians at the Petersburg National Park. And he's going to be talking about Petersburg and the Appomattox campaign. And, of course, the the Battle of Petersburg is one of the forgotten stories of the Civil War because it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't short. It was drawn, drawn out, bloody, no clear winner till the very end. And that's why sometimes maybe it's forgotten. But we're going to be talking to Chris Bryce. Now, Chris Bryce is going to be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable on June 14th. And if you want to go to the Civil War Roundtable, it's a great place to talk about the Civil War. And a lot of people I, I talk to, and they kind of think it's uh, more difficult to get in than you think. Just call for reservations at 718-341-9811, 718-341-9811. The cost to nine members is $60, but you get a three-course meal. And a lot of these historical societies, you pay 40 50 bucks. And you don't get any meal. And, of course, the big advantage of the Civil War Roundtable, you have very good access to the speakers. And over the years, I've learned to, uh, I've learned and met many great Civil War historians like Ed Bars and so forth from the Civil War Roundtable. And we are going to be interviewing Ed Bars soon. And we're going to be talking about one of his favorite Civil War generals and, of course, one of mine, too, fighting Tom Sweeney. And Tom Sweeney was quite a character. And Ed Bars wants to talk about some of the stories that involved fighting Tom Sweeney. The other interview we have tonight is one of my favorite people from Legatus, Joe Pierce. Joe Pierce, we interviewed a few months ago about his book, Race with the Devil. Joe Pierce was a neo-Nazi right-wing nut, and he would say that himself. While he was in prison for hate speech in England, he had a conversion, became a Catholic, born-again Catholic, so to speak. 
And he's got a play coming out in New York, Death Comes to the War Poet. And he's going to be talking about that play. And the, the premiere of the play starts on June 9th at the Sheen Center in Manhattan. And if you, have, if you want to get any information about the Sheen Center, just plug in Sheen Center to your computer. You can buy tickets there. In the meanwhile, let's, uh, let's take a couple questions about estate planning and elder law. We have a question from Cindy in Brooklyn. Yes, Cindy, what's your question? Uh, yes, I, I want to know how to get my husband on Medicaid. He needs full-time care, and how do I do that? I don't, I don't want to lose my home. Okay, your husband. You're, you're talking about home care Medicaid. He's not in a nursing home. Home care. Yeah. Okay. Basically, the first step is assuming your husband's over sixty-five. You get the assets out of his name, either put it into a trust or your name as the spouse, depending on the circumstances. The house we want to put in the trust, so if we apply for Medicaid, Medicaid cannot put a lien on the house. And so, for instance, if you put your house in a trust in June, you can apply for Medicaid in July, Medicaid home care, and Medicaid cannot put a lien on the house. You do the same with the other assets. The liquid assets, you can either switch to your to spouse's name or to a trust, and again, you're able to apply for home care Medicaid within a within a, the month after, in other words, if you get all the assets transferred over in June, on June 30th, on July 1st, the first day of the month following transfer, you can apply for home care Medicaid. There are very good programs in New York to help keep you out of a nursing home. And the first step you want to look at in any of these crisis situations is home care Medicaid. Is your husband a veteran? No. Okay. Well, there's some other programs with the VA. And, and you know, good luck, Cindy. Let me talk about the VA for a minute. A lot of people don't realize... If you're a veteran, and a veteran is somebody who served in the U.S. military during time of war, you don't necessarily have to sign serve during combat or in combat, but you have to serve during time of war. And if you serve during those times of war, which basically is World War II, which technically the last date of service on that is December 31st, 1946. I know some of you out there, hey, he doesn't know history. The war ended long before that. Well, true, but... As far as the VA is concerned, if you served on active duty before December 31st, 1946, you're a World War II veteran. And then January 1950 to 1955, you're a Korean War veteran. Then, unfortunately, those guys who served between 1955 and 1962 are not veterans. But after that, if you served, you're a Vietnam War veteran until 1975. And, of course, 75 until the uh, late 80s, again, sorry, you don't qualify, but, of course, after the late 80s, you get into the Gulf War, and, and virtually anybody who served in the, in the military since the Gulf War is a veteran. So if you are a U.S. veteran, you need home care. The VA will pick up up to $2,000 a month towards your home care or assisted living costs and nursing home costs. And sometimes that $2,000 a month can really, can really help. And there is no look-back period as of now. There is no look-back period for the VA benefit. There's no look-back period for home care Medicaid, which means you could literally have a million dollars in the bank today, put that million dollars in a trust between now and the end of June, and apply for home care Medicaid on July 1st. Now, is that right? Well, if you have a million dollars in the bank, I'm not sure if it's right. But if you have a $900,000 house and $80,000 in the bank, and you're going to go broke pretty quickly if you don't do some planning, then I would put that house in a trust and apply for home care Medicaid within a you know, a few weeks. 
There are a lot of good programs in New York to keep you out of a nursing home. If you want to learn more about that, you can give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. The initial consultation is free. We don't charge for the first meeting. There's no one right answer for everybody. You know, so we come in and talk it over. And, you know, a couple of months ago, a guy came into our office and he said he was talking to his friend. He says, I, you know, I got an appointment with Mike Connors. And I said, how'd you do that? And he says, I called up and I made an appointment. And it really is as simple as that. Now, yeah, every once in a while, those of you who are a little impatient, you may get a little annoyed, maybe you're waiting a little bit, you know, to see me. But I will see everybody that calls. You can schedule an appointment at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We can talk it over. We have offices in Bayside, Queens, on Northern Boulevard. We're in Metropolitan Avenue in Middle Village, Queens, 110 East 59th Street in Midtown Manhattan. We're in 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island, New York. And in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, our main office, 7408 Fifth Avenue, 7408 Fifth Avenue, which I understand is going to be the headquarters for the uh, Fifth Avenue Spring Festival tomorrow. If you're if you're in the Bay Ridge area, stop by at Fifth Avenue and 74th Street. All right, we got a question from Mike in Brooklyn. Yes, Mike, what's your question? Uh, good evening, Counselor. Uh, I'd like to repeat what I said to the uh, uh, young uh, caller screener. Okay. If uh, if two biological brothers are estranged and the one uh, dies. Other than probate, is there any mechanism in the uh, law uh, that the surviving brother will be advised of not only the death, but of the circumstances? Or is it uh, possible that the one could die and the survivor wouldn't even know? Uh, uh, and if, uh, if the survivor learns of the death, and uh, is there an- anything he can do, or does he have to pr- uh, uh, hire a private investigator to find out the details about his brother's death? Well, let me ask you first thing. The brother that died, is he married? Does he have children? I beg your pardon? The brother who dies first, does he, is he married? Does he have children? Uh, the brother that died, uh, I'm not sure about the surviving of the of his wife and his children were stepchildren. So stepchildren are not related. Well, that was the situation. And As if, they say, the, the deceased brother, uh, uh, his wife, uh, I believe, is deceased uh, as well. And the son that he had uh, was a stepson. And what state did he die in or may have died in? Well, that's, uh, that's the, the really, uh, he died uh, in, in March of 2015. And uh, uh, the, uh, uh, it's disturbing that in all this time, uh, there no, no no news of it. Well, it obviously, just, you can get a copy of his death certificate and go from there. Now, if he didn't have any assets in his name, and of course I don't know what state he lived in, in New York, Florida, in Florida, okay, I'm not sure about the laws in Florida. In New York State, if you die and somebody wants to probate a will, everybody who's an next of kin by law, in this case, under the circumstances repeated, you would be an next of kin and should get a copy of the will. In Florida, you may have to go down there to see a copy of the will. You can certainly get a death certificate as next of kin. 
and you can get somebody in a local probate court. You can check with Social Security to see where your brother died. You can get his death certificate, and you can check the probate court. Well, you said he was estranged, so it's not likely he left you anything in his will. Uh, most probably, but what is uh, more important is that uh, uh, estranged or not, he was my brother, and I'd like to know why it is that, uh, uh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, why how, what? How to how to capture this? It, I, I I would like to. You know, the reason I, the way I learned of the death was through uh, 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 veterans that I uh, uh, was doing some other business. And when I filled out about uh, my family, uh, uh, I gave them uh, family information. And when they checked, they said, well, this brother here is deceased. And I says, oh, my. Uh, uh, this is uh, quite a, a blow here. Uh, and then I thought it would be, you know, within a month or two or something that, that they died. And then they said, no, it's listed here as this date. And I says, are you sure? And they double-checked. And, and I, uh, well, I'm at a loss as to, uh, uh, well. Well, it's, check it's, first. It's Here's not- the thing. Check what first. With the Social Security death records, you find out your brother died when he died, and it shouldn't be that hard for you to find him because you would know his date of birth, and you might even know his Social Security number. So it would be pretty easy to find him and then find out what state he died and ask that state for a copy of his death certificate, and that's step one or two. When you get to step three, you can always give us a call back. Thank you, Mike. I do have to take a break right now. Thank you for listening to the show. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. 
Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, welcome back. You know, I don't know if you remember last week we had a a tape show on because I was out of uh, town. I was in San Antonio, Texas, among other places. And we were able... Very fortunately, able to see the John Wayne Alamo that was built for the film, you know, roughly in 1959. It's very, very impressive, very interesting. Uh, it's falling into disrepair right now because the owner of the property passed away, and his heirs aren't sure what they're going to do with it. But, you know, the Alamo, very interesting place to see. You know, it's a, it's a shrine. It's a church that, you know, 180-some-odd Americans gave their lives to give Texas independence and eventually get part, formed as part of the United States. So, but I'd like to thank the Wayne family for what they did in getting this in to see the John Wayne Alamo. And, you know, talking about our John Wayne Cancer Institute, they are really very good people. And if you're thinking about a charity to leave something to for research and cancer, I really can't think of a better group than the John Wayne Cancer Institute. Patrick, I think, is going to be coming in New York sometime in October. Maybe we have a little bit broader uh, get-together or something like that when he gets into town in October. But, again, I, it's really a good group. And I'm, I'm also very grateful. They did a, an article on me in the John Wayne Cancer Institute, you know, about this radio show here. So good people, John Wayne Cancer Institute. So if, if you're looking for a charity, and listen, I know there are 100 good charities, and we have 100 good charities that we – you know, are aligned with in one way or the other. But if you're looking for somebody cancer research, take a look at the John Wayne Cancer Institute. They're good people. They're faith-based people. They, I believe they really do the right thing. And if you want to look for a place to invest your money in a, a cancer research, the John Wayne Cancer Institute. Now, again, later in the show, we're going we're gonna to be going into interviews in a couple of minutes. We're going to be talking to Chris Bryce about the Civil War. You can see him at the Three West Club on September 4th, um, sorry, on June 14th at the Three West Club, Three West 51st Street. And if you want tickets for that, you're going to have to give us a call at 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. Okay, I guess we're going to take another break, and after the break, we're going to be talking to Chris Bryce. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. 
If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, our guest is Chris Bryce, Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at the Petersburg National Battlefield in Virginia. He's going to be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable in New York at the Three Less Club on Manhattan on June 14th. What is going to be the topic of your talk, Chris? Uh, the topic on June 14th will be... Um, it's. it's it's going to be on the siege of Petersburg, but um, going to highlight uh, two things: the crater, but more importantly, uh, Lincoln's visit to uh, Petersburg in March, uh, March and April of 1865. Um, of the last three weeks that Lincoln was alive, two of them were spent along the Petersburg and, and Richmond fronts uh, as the war was coming to a close. Wasn't it dangerous? I mean, he's the president of the United States, and he's coming in effect to a Conquer territory, front. battlefield front. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think for us today, you know, knowing all the um, all the security risks that that a president, a chief executive would face, um, yeah, it would be, be somewhat of a daunting undertaking. However, um, this will sound kind of ironic. He, you know, Lincoln was pretty much besieged in Washington D.C. by politicians, by individuals that were still coming in looking for favors from the president, and. It was actually suggested by General Grant's wife uh, that he come that he come to Petersburg to come uh, come to City Point where Grant had his headquarters. Now I don't know how, you know, coming to the front lines was you know getting away from stuff, but uh, you know he he accepted the invitation and and left Washington D.C. for for Virginia. What was the goal of the visit to the front lines? I, you know, I think initially it was just to to get out of Washington, but to come down and see. Um, what was unfolding in those last weeks of the of the Confederacy? Because when Lincoln departs Washington, there's there's really not, um, you know, there's not a doubt anymore of of if they're going to win the war. It's it's when the when the Union Army uh, is able to to achieve that final victory. And I think for Lincoln, it gives him an ability to meet with his commanding general face to face and pretty much articulate his plans for how the country will come out of the uh, 
out of the conflict, so essentially Lincoln's plans for peace and reunification. To a large extent, the Battle of Petersburg is kind of overlooked and forgotten about, even though it's probably the most crucial battle of the war. It, it really is, and I think, I think the problem with, um, with Petersburg is, you know, when you're dealing with a, a first or second Manassas, um, you know, in 1861 and 1862, you're looking at a one-day battle, two-day battle. I mean, you know, Gettysburg was, was three days, and, and yet um, Petersburg was 292 days, and we are the longest sustained military operation of the, of the war. Um, it is certainly one of the most complex in terms of what it involves, because it's, it's not only operations directed against the city of Petersburg, which was the third largest in Virginia, it's also directing operations against the Confederate, Confederate capital in Richmond. And with Grant being in control of all Union armies, not just the ones that are here um, in Petersburg or in, in front of Richmond, he, he's pretty much He's driving the bus. He is he is guiding the entire Union war effort uh, for those last um, eleven, almost almost eleven months of the war, which which was a little different. Whereas you had each you know kind of area commander taking care of things and reporting back to Washington, but now everything's coming through Grant and and then going to Washington or or you know or vice versa. So, um, but as far as you know, the overlooked aspects. Just on just around Petersburg, you have over 1,100 military actions. Um, so to sit down and be able to get a good, um, you know, a good feel for the battle in, in one volume that that is that is less than you know a couple of hundred pages, which which has been done, but it you know it leaves some things out. Um, I, I think that's one of the hard things for uh, students of of the Civil War today is just is just having something at their hands where they can really get a good a good feel for what what took place at at Petersburg. Give us an idea of the number of casualties, the number of combatants involved. Well, the Union army um at its height will swell to uh well over well over 100 between 100 and 120,000 men uh under arms. The the Confederate army um obviously is is dwindling day by day, but but Lee will actually come into um Richmond and Petersburg, and keep in mind with Lee, he's he's got to defend not only the city of Richmond, but he also has to defend um, Petersburg as well. And he's only got between, you know, maybe sixty-five and seventy thousand men to do that. And he's also going to be dispatching some of his uh, some of his troops to the Shenandoah Valley, uh, you know, late in the summer of 1864, the fall of 1864. So. Um, it really becomes a numbers game uh, here. When when it's all said and done, you know we're looking at casualties, killed, wounded, missing, um, around seventy thousand. And and while that doesn't sound like a lot, um, this is not you know this is not a military, um, this is not an engagement where they're going to be fighting open field battles every single day, where you're putting a fifty or sixty thousand man force against one another. Um, like you had in, in some of the, the the other battles that preceded it, um, so it's it's drawn out. They they've dug in. Um, you know these are these are well fortified positions, and you're just you're just not going to see that that open field um, you know battle as you as you would have seen in 1863. And that's you know that's one of the unique things of the of the Virginia campaign in 1864 is just that evolution from open field battle to understanding you know how trenches can protect the army and you you see it from the wilderness to petersburg just how the trenches in the field 
uh, start to become more elaborate and much uh, much more formidable, and and you certainly see that here on the uh, on the Petersburg Richmond front. Why did it start at Petersburg? I mean, where you really started to get into the trench warfare? Um, you, you know, I think you see it coming. Um, there's this this idea, I think, that with the Overland campaign, while well, we evolve into it, it's we evolve because the soldiers realize that it's a heck of a lot safer to be behind some type of uh, protective barrier than it was to be in the open field. And um, with Petersburg, uh, they already had begun fortifying the city as early as 1862, but since... Um, since most of the fighting in Virginia, at least, was in the valley or further north um, around Washington, D.C., um, there, there wasn't a great urgency to, to fortify the city here, but there already was uh, the Damoc line, which had been laid out. It, it, it had um, you know, upwards of 50, 50 gun batteries uh, positioned in it, and as things began to progress southward through Virginia in, in the spring and uh, early summer of 1864, um, that need to to uh, substantially um, strengthen the fortifications here took on took on a new meeting. So there was, you know, there were fortifications already here, um, but they will they will take on a greater urgency as as Grant's army moves south. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Our guest right now is Chris Price, Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services of the Petersburg National Battlefield of Virginia. Chris, we were talking about the uh, Petersburg campaign, and I was mentioning that my wife is from Louisiana, and her mother was from Louisiana, and one of her heroes was General Beauregard. Can you tell them about his role at the beginning of the battle? Um, Beauregard is really um, the, un- the unsung hero here at, uh, at Petersburg. I-, I started my Park Service career uh, up at Manassas National Battlefield, so you know Beauregard obviously was a central figure uh, in the fighting in July of 1861, and um, yeah, I guess I'm fortunate to be on the battlefield of the first major land battle of the war. Now I'm here at Petersburg, and I, you know, I get to see him again. Um, he's really the one that uh, saved the city initially because Lee uh, was very indecisive as to where he wanted to place the Confederate Army after the Battle of Cold Harbor. Uh, Grant was able to uh, maneuver most of the Army of the Potomac across the James River, unknown to Lee. Um, Lee really didn't know where he was going to go. Would he strike directly at the city of Richmond? Would he strike you know, further south at, at Petersburg, which was a vital uh, rail transportation hub here uh, below the Confederate capital? Um, Beauregard quickly realized, you know, through information he was getting, that a sizable Union force, federal force, was heading against the city. He was... Uh, uh, playing with Lee to get to get reinforcements sent, but but again, Lee is kind of split over: Do I defend the you know do I defend the capital? Do I defend Petersburg? And Beauregard, with a very um, a very small force, he's outnumbered uh, something like uh, eight to one at one point in the in- initial assaults uh, in in June of 1864. And being an engineer, what what Beauregard was doing was um, as the main line, which was the Damoc line, was defending against those early attacks. He was already laying out a, another line uh, that was much closer to the city of Petersburg. He was he was tightening in the um, the to protective defenses to shorten his interior lines of communication and things like that. So as that fighting was going on, and 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 again the Union Army 
when they make those initial attacks, they're, they're doing it uh, not on a broad front, but on a very narrow front. So it was a lot easier to, to concentrate efforts in, in one location over, over the course of about three or four days. And after those initial assaults, um, the Confederates are able to hold here under Beauregard. Uh, he establishes a second line closer, closer to the city. And by that time, Lee is already you know, now he's starting to send those reinforcements south. But if, if Beauregard isn't on his game, um, he's not, um, you know, if he's not really paying attention to what's happening in front of him, uh, the results could have been much different. We may have looked at a, a four-day affair at Petersburg as opposed to, to 292 uh, because he's, he's the one that really establishes uh, the initial Confederate resistance, and it's, it's one that Lee can eventually build off of. And, and he'll hold for, for that nine months that the siege uh, endures. What was the goal of Robert E. Lee in, in holding off the siege for nine months? Didn't he feel like at some point, hey, the game's over? I, I, I think it's there. Um, probably the biggest motivator is, is a hope that they can hold out long enough, um, maybe inflict another major uh, defeat on, on, on the Union Army here in, in front of either Richmond or, or Petersburg. And there's an election coming up in November of 1864. So the hope is maybe um, the election doesn't go in, in Lincoln's favor. Uh, there's a change, of, um, a change of administrations, and, um, you know, they can, they can go on from there. But I, I think, uh, you know, after the, after the Overland campaign uh, co- concludes with the initial assaults on Petersburg, I, 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 he's got to be thinking in his mind that that, that end is coming and, and you know, maybe they don't know what that date is, but, um, uh, you know, that the writing's on the wall after, after the bloodletting that they see at the wilderness, Spotsylvania, North Anna, Cold Harbor. Um, and he, you know, whereas in previous years, Union commanders had taken those, those batterings and, and taken two steps back, you know, they, they crossed back over the Rappahannock or the Rapidan, whichever, even though Grant's taking these, these you know, punches to the face, he is con- still continuing his push to the south towards towards Richmond he you know he is not letting go and i and i think that uh has got to rattle the mindset of of Robert E Lee how did the battle eventually end the the main thing here is just just there's what what grant does over the course of 9 months once the the lines become established especially after the initial assaults in june of 1864 and then with the Battle of the Crater in July of 1864, once both Union and Confederate lines, especially the Confederate lines, stabilize, um, it, it now becomes more of a numbers game for Grant. Uh, he's, he's, he's certainly going to have the upper hand in terms of manpower, um, supplies that are coming in. His, his headquarters at City Point will actually come, become one of the busiest shipping ports, if not the busiest in the world. Uh, you'll have... Um, you know, anywhere between 175 and 200 vessels at anchor on any given day at City Point, bringing in supplies, munitions. Uh, his armies are well fed; they're well equipped. Uh, whereas Lee, on the other hand, um, he's basically holding on with with what he has. Uh, Grant is systematically removing uh, all of his lifelines. There were five railroads that emanated uh, to and from Petersburg, and and by the fall of 1864, Grant has eliminated all but one of those lines. Uh, coming into the uh, into the city, so um, it's much harder for the Confederacy to get food, to get supplies, and then um, in April of 1865, uh, the Union forces are able to slide further west of Petersburg, and, and you know again, it's like you know every time Grant steps to the 
to his left, Lee's got to go to his his right, and eventually Lee's going to run out of the soldiers to keep stepping, you know, further further west. And once the Union Army is able to uh, flank Lee's lines at Five Forks on April 1st, uh, 1865, the next morning, April 2nd, there's a general assault, essentially along the vast majority of the Confederate line, and they and they are overwhelmed uh, in the pre-dawn hours of of April 2nd along most of the lines. And then by April 3rd, um, Union forces are in Petersburg, Lincoln is in Petersburg, and they'll begin the pursuit towards uh, towards Appomattox. Today, a visitor today, they come to the Petersburg battlefield. What, what's there for them to see, and what should they see? We have... Um, we have a driving tour. We have the park is divided into to, uh, a couple of, of a couple of units. We have the main our main unit, which is the Eastern Front unit, has uh, most of the sites associated with the initial assaults in June of 1864, uh, as well as the uh, the crater, and then um, a site that was heavily contested in 1865 at Fort Stedman, where Lee undertakes his last offensive of the war and, and certainly of the Petersburg campaign, where he tried to push federal forces back on their heels just enough to give him breathing room. It's, it wasn't a, a fight to break out of the city or relieve the city. It was more just to, you know, put the Union Army back on its heels for a bit and then um, and then hopefully, you know, regroup for, for an evacuation of the city. We have the site of Five Forks where uh, uh, the vital intersection there uh, – gave access to the Southside Railroad, and once the Southside Railroad was closed off to the uh, Confederates in Petersburg, uh, that's that's pretty much their, their death knell. We have the site of uh, Grant's headquarters at City Point at Appomattox Manor. Um, it is on the banks of the James and Appomattox, actually it sits at the point of the confluence of the uh, James and Appomattox Rivers, very quiet site today. It really doesn't, uh, um, you know, show its former... Uh, uh, self as a uh, as a busy shipping port in 1864 and 1865. Uh, we have Poplar Grove National Cemetery that just underwent a 4.2 million dollar renovation. Um, it has gone from being one of the uh, most decrepit looking national cemeteries in the uh, national park system to probably the most beautiful of the 14 that are maintained by the NPS. Uh, we just opened the cemetery and. April, actually, the end of last month, uh, after an 18-month closure. So it's uh, it, it is it is quite a location to see, to say the, to say the least. It is it is magnificent. June 14th, Chris Bryce, Petersburg, in the beginning of the Appomattox campaign, three West Club, three West 51st Street. If you want to call for reservations, give us a call at 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. Chris Bryce, thank you for bringing history to life. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. 
This is Father Frank Lavone, National Director of Priests for Life. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A few months ago, we had on Joe Pierce talking about his autobiographical book, Race with the Devil. And he's back here again today. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing fine, thank you. Race with the Devil. Some of the people may not have heard the show a few months ago. What was it about? Well, uh, in my bad, wicked past, uh, when I was a young man, from the age of 15 to the age of about 25, I was the member of a white supremacist neo-Nazi organization in the UK, which is where I'm from. Um, And uh, for that, I went to prison twice for hate crimes. And during the second prison sentence, I started going to mass, started to pray and uh, escape from my old life into a new world, so to speak, uh, after my release from the second prison sentence and was actually received into the Catholic Church when I was 28 years old. And I've now been a Catholic for 28 years. So half of my life. Now, you were nominally Anglican Protestant. Why did you decide to become a Catholic? Well, you know, I, nominal was the right word, really. It, it, I was sort of uh, what, what I sometimes called an Anglican agnostic in the sense that, you know, I was, I was baptized into the Anglican Church as a baby, but m- my family never went to church. We never had any prayer life whatsoever. So I was a de, a de jure uh, Anglican, but a de facto agnostic. So once I started getting interested in, in Christianity, it was through the writers such as G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc and blessed John Henry Newman. So, you know, I, it, was, it was Catholic Christianity that I, I began to take seriously. And certainly, and quite frankly, in the light of Catholic Christianity, Anglicanism appears a, a, a pale shadow in comparison. You know, I was at the Sheen Center a couple of weeks ago, and I was looking at the calendar, and I see that on June 8th, Joe Pierce is going to be at the Sheen Center in uh, New York City on Bleecker Street. Yes, indeed. I'm very excited to be there because I wrote a, a, a play based upon the lives of, uh, of some war poets, a Catholic war poet, Seafried Sassoon in particular, which is called Death Comes for the War Poets. And that's actually being, uh, has a three-week run at the Sheen Center. And I'm going to be there for the, for the opening night to give, to give a short lecture and, and to do the, uh, open the curtain, so to, so to speak, on, on, on that run. It's very exciting because uh, this is a whole new ball game for me. Death Comes for the War Poets. What war are we talking about? We're talking about World War I, and, and I was inspired to, to write the, uh, the play uh, because this year, 2017, is the centenary of, uh, of the United States entry into World War I, but it's also um, the centenary of, uh, of a soldier's declaration by the English poet Siegfried Sassoon uh, that was published in, 20, in 1917. Um, and um, 
so soon would later go on in 1957, so 60 years ago, to be, to be received into the Catholic Church. And 1967, 50 years ago, he would die. So there's this sort of, uh, if you like, congruence of uh, significant anniversaries which inspired my writing this, uh, this play about uh, World War I and, uh, and the experience of, of two uh, war poets, um, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, as I've just mentioned, and Wilfred Owen, uh, of that war and how it impacted their understanding of life and death and God and religion and all those biggest questions of life. Now, these poets, I mean, you have to admit, today they're not exactly household names. How are they relevant to today's world? Well, you know, the, probably, arguably at least, the finest war poetry ever written was written by, by the, 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 uh, the poets of World War One, And of those uh, poets, Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen are probably the best known. In this country, we also have Joyce Kilmer, another Catholic poem, poet, and he was killed uh, uh, during World War One. Um, basically, the important thing about them, apart from obviously the historical aspect, is that they do ask in their poetry some of the deepest questions about life and death and war and peace and uh, all of these questions that uh, are at the forefront, really, of our experience as human beings. And the fact is that Siegfried Sassoon does come through his experience of suffering and war to an acceptance and embrace of uh, Christianity in general and Catholic Christianity in particular. And Owens? Well, Wolfwood Owen actually died during the war, and that's part of the tragedy of the whole thing. Uh, you know, he, he dies, dies very young. He did appear to be much more cynical and bitter than Siegfried Sassoon, so we could sort of guess where his, the, the, the trajectory of his life may have led. But, of course, it's ultimately a moot point because the thief in the night swept him away uh, in that horrific war. So he, he, he dies... Uh, Siegfried Sassoon survives, and the third character in the drama is the character of Death herself. She's a female spirit in the play, and again, how Death herself can be transformed by an understanding of where Death fits into the wider scheme of things. So, from the cynical perspective we have at the beginning of the play, you know, Death is almost like one of the uh, the wicked hags from Macbeth, almost almost a witch type character who's threatening and evil. But then it, by the end, when Siegfried Sassoon has, has converted and has a, a Christian understanding of life after death, death herself is, is transformed, if you like. Death herself is converted uh, into an almost angelic being. So it also asks those deeper questions as to what is death. I know you're an expert on Tolkien, and he, he was involved in World War One. How did that affect his writings later? Uh, greatly. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful book called uh, uh, On Tolkien and the Great War by, by a British scholar. You know, Tolkien, um, he, he was actually one of the soldiers who fought in what he called the animal horror of the Battle of the Somme, which is one of the bloodiest battles in the whole of human history. So, of course, he was impacted by the fact that some of his best friends were killed during that war, by his experience of the horrors of, of the trench warfare itself, and some of the darkness we see in The Lord of the Rings, for instance, uh, some of the evil we see in The Lord of the Rings, is a direct reflection of uh, Tolkien's experience of World War One. And we can say the same, of course, of C.S. Lewis, who also, who's also fought and survived in that war. Just looking at uh, your Wikipedia page, since we spoke last, I think you've published uh, three more books? <laughs> it's been said I publish three books a week. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I, 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 I'm always publishing new books. Death Comes for the War Poets is out next month um, in, in, in good time for the, for the Sheen Centre. Um, but yes, I've got a new book out called po Poems Every Catholic Should Know and a, 
a book out, which is the life of uh, of the Catholic um, benefactor, if you like, the, the Catholic tycoon uh, Tom Monaghan, who founded Domino's Pizza and Ave Maria University. Who's also been on a guest in the show a number of times. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Well, Tom, I'm following you know, in illustrious footsteps, and I see. Right. I got a story to tell you about that, which I'll tell the audience a little bit later when 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 you come up to New York. Now, on June eighth. You're going to do an introduction to the play. Is the play going to be shown that night? Yes, it is. It's going to be the opening night. Um, so uh, uh, that's, uh, that's exciting. I'm going to be there for the weekend. I think there's an event uh, the night before it, before the, the play opens. Then I'm going to be uh, doing the introduction of the opening night itself. And I may even be there for a day, the day after that to do something else. I, I think they're still in the process of finalizing the, entire, the, the exact schedule. But I think I'm going to be arriving on the Wednesday uh, I think the opening night's the Friday, if I recall correctly, and I'm going to be doing things, uh, you know, in in New York City uh, over that weekend, basically to promote to promote the uh, the play. Now, if some of you out there haven't been to the Sheen Center, it's it, it's a great venue. You know, it's beautiful center. Not the not the hardest place to get to. It's on on Bleecker Street off Bowery. Neighborhood's been revitalized, so if you haven't been in the neighborhood in the last 20 years, don't get too worried about it. But Bleecker and Bowery. Sheen Center, and, and how do they get tickets? Well, you know, uh, I'm not exactly sure. It's 30 days yet, and uh, I, I, I'm, you're telling, telling uh, your listeners whereabouts the Sheen Center is. I would be completely lost and couldn't get there myself. Um, so, <laughs> I'm obviously a stranger to New York City. I don't know exactly yet how to how to uh, get tickets, but if they go to the Sheen Center um, uh, website, uh, all will be revealed. Okay. So we'll publish the website on, on on our webpage, and if you have any questions, you can always give our office a call. Joe Pierce, thank you for uh, thank you for stopping by, and you know we look forward to June eighth. Yes, me too. Thanks, thanks, thanks for uh, for having me on the show, and I look forward to meeting you. Okay, very good. Okay, our friend Joe Pierce. Then uh, again, at Sheen Center, you know, get on their website. Tickets for the you know the play. Now I understand the June eighth performance is sold out but there are tickets available for the later performances and joe pierce i mean he is a brilliant guy like you said he you know he publishes he, the joke is he publishes three books a week but if if you want a story about conversion and, and christ's grace in this life read race with the devil and joe pierce was sentenced to jail for hate crime in britain he was at the bottom of his barrel he was in despair he was ready to give up and God's grace fell upon him, and he changed his life around for the last 28 years. Very, very interesting story, and Joe Pierce is a very interesting guy. And if you can't make the June 8th one or the tickets are already gone, you know, pick up the, you know, go see the the play. I am sure Joe Pierce is a very sharp guy, and I'm sure it's going to be a very good play. Now, next week, we're going to have two fairly prominent guests. Our first guest, I guess, is going to be David Limbaugh, and David Limbaugh has written a lot of books in the last few years proving or at least making the allegations and proof that Christ was real and that he, you know, there's enough evidence that he is the Son of God and, you know, that the Bible, in effect, is true history. So we're going to be talking to David Limbaugh, you know, in next week's show. We're going to follow that up with one of... In my mind, one of the favorite personalities of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Pat Buchanan. And Pat Buchanan's got a book out about the Nixon years. And, 
You know, Pat Buchanan wrote another book about Nixon a few years ago about the greatest comeback, and it really was the greatest comeback. Richard Nixon in 1960 lost the presidential race. In 1962, he was clobbered by Pat Brown for the governorship of, you know, California. Of course, a few years later, Ronald Reagan beat Pat Brown. But, you know, in 1962, Richard Nixon was clobbered by Pat Brown. It looked like he was politically dead. And then six years later, he gets elected to be president of the United States. Ten years later, he wins re-election, winning all 49 states, 49 out of 50 states. And, of course, then disgraced a couple of months after that. And Pat Buchanan was there in the Nixon White House. So, you know, we'll be listening to that. Next week on Ask the Lawyer, I guess David Kincaid is singing this off again. See you, same time and place, next week on Ask the Lawyer. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.